0: You're in the
1: Waterloop. Waterloop, Waterloop, Waterloop. Waterloop is made possible in part by grants from Springpoint Partners and the Walton Family Foundation. Waterloop. Hi, this is Travis with Waterloop. Water conservation is very important to me, and I bet it is to all of you. That's why I use High Sierra shower heads in my house, and I'm so happy to have them as a supporter of this podcast. High Sierra carries the EPA WaterSense label for efficiency and uses 40% less water than conventional low-flow shower heads. 40%. The model I have uses just a gallon and a half per minute. And because of their unique nozzle design, it's patented. Nobody else has it. It maximizes efficiency of water and energy use, but doesn't sacrifice on performance. You still get a powerful shower. Use promo code LOOP20 for 20% off at HighSierraShowerHeads.com.
0: You're in the Waterloop.
1: Welcome to Waterloop. This is Travis. Joined by Brian Richter. He is the president of Sustainable Waters. He previously served as the director of the Global Water Program of the Nature Conservancy, and he also teaches water sustainability at the University of Virginia. Brian, looking forward to a conversation.
0: Yeah, mutual. Travis, thanks very much. Glad to be here.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm uh, excited to talk to you because of your you know several decades of really incredible experience in the water sector all around the world in the U.S. Uh, and so much to learn from your your experience and your perspective. Mm. I'm really interested in how you were part of growing the Nature Conservancy's uh, water. Program from something that was, you know, very very small to really having a, a big global footprint. Um, what what's that story and and what was that like?
0: Well, it was an incredible experience, Travis. Uh, so it literally started with one. Um, I was the very <laughs> first full time water hire in the Nature Conservancy back in 1991, and and over the last couple of decades, you know, we were able to build the ranks of people working on water within the Nature Conservancy to more than 600 people. So you can imagine that was exhilarating, rewarding, very, very exciting. We went from primarily working in the United States, of course, to as the Nature Conservancy expanded its global operations, we ended up working in, gosh, I guess my team probably worked in about 30, 35 different countries and maybe, you know, more than 150 different projects. So incredible experience. And I'm just very thankful that the organization enabled that growth and, and that we were able to have, you know, hopefully have some impact um, in different places around the world.
1: I'm so interested because the nature conservancy is, you know, absolutely one of the leading environmental and conservation organizations that there is out there. Um, what enabled that type of growth? What was the, I guess, what was the void out there and mm. and what allowed for the nature conservancy to successfully Uh, move into so many countries and and go to work.
0: You know, that's a terrific question, Travis, because um, prior to 1990, even the biggest conservation organizations in the world weren't really that involved in freshwater conservation, rivers, streams, lakes, wetlands. It was mostly terrestrial conservation. And so um, we did have um, a bit of a challenge. Uh, I, I joined the Nature Conservancy a few years beca- before I became the first time water person. and But but finally, I think the organization started to realize that all of these terrestrial areas that they were trying to protect or that they were interested in trying to bring some, some conservation to, a lot, a lot of them had water in them, had wa- had rivers flowing through them. And yet they really didn't have the knowledge, the expertise to be able to deal with some of the water problems that were emerging. There were upstream users of the water that were drying up the stream as it went through, you know, the, the protected area properties. And, um, and there was water, water pollution problems as well. So I think it was a time when the Nature Conservancy was finally coming to the realization that they needed to deal with their water issues. And um, I was just fortunate to be in the right place at the right time.
1: Mm-hmm. One of the things I, I like about the Nature Conservancy is the the focus on solutions and collaboration, right? Mm-hmm. It's not like this big heavy hammer that comes in and tries to pound things around and, and get things to go their way. It's very, very much, what are the local issues here, right? How can we collaborate? How can we work on a, a conservation approach? So I imagine that that was allowed it to be received pretty well as it went to these new places and into different cultures and everything. Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: Yeah, Travis. And I think, um, you know, one of the, one of the first things that comes to mind in that regard is, uh, you know, I think a lot of people in the water community, you know, saw organizations like the army Corps of engineers as, as a monolithic organization. And, and also, you know, one that was sort of stuck in its, in its ways. And, you but we did an analysis, um, we did a national analysis within the United States, and it was clear to us that existing dams and the way that they were being operated was a big problem for things that lived in rivers downstream of those dams. And when we looked at the United States, you know, the majority of those dams were being operated by the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. And so we boldly went in um, in one place, the Green River in Kentucky, and we had a conversation with the district engineer there and much to our surprise and um, I guess relief, <laughs> we found a pretty receptive audience there. And we had a, we had a, very, a very productive conversation uh, with them. And we were able to start making changes to the way that that dam on the Green River in Kentucky was being operated. Well, very quickly that relationship started to spread. Word got around in the Army Corps of Engineers, even the Chief of Engineers got interested in this collaboration. And before you know it, we had create, mutually created what we called the Sustainable Rivers Project, which you know had grown to, you know, today from that one start in one dam, you know, on the Green River in Kentucky, it's now um, some sixty some dams on sixteen rivers across the country, and very good news. Just this year, the Nature Conservancy was able to get a congressional appropriation to the Army Corps of Engineers to grow that even further. So they're they're going to add another five or 10 rivers um, into the program here shortly. And and then, you know, the other part that I think was really intriguing and very exciting, Travis, was this this idea of leveraging relationships and leveraging success to take you to a whole different level. And so, so the illustration I have for you on that is, Because of our successful work with the Army Corps of Engineers, we were able to have conversations in places like China and Kenya. And um, I'll never forget a meeting we had in the boardroom of the um, Three Gorges Corporation in Beijing, you know, the builders and the operators of the Three Gorges Dam, you know, one of the biggest Mm. dams on the planet. And we went in there, we had some ideas about, you know, things that needed to be changed in that dam's operations and again, we found a receptive audience and particularly once we mentioned that we had this partnership with the Army Corps of Engineers, boy, the atmosphere in the room just changed you know, in a heartbeat wow. and it just opened the door. And so you, you have those kinds of experiences, which are very, very rewarding. Yeah, I, I, that's
1: awesome. I, I wanted to ask also about any other successes or solutions, projects that really jump out in your, in your memory that, that stand out?
0: Well, I think that... Um, There were a lot of them that, uh, you know, and it's a lot of this is work in progress, of course, Mm. you know, it's, um, you know, in the changing world and the changing politics and the changing economies, you know, um, you know, nothing is permanent, nothing is Mm. set in stone. But um, one very interesting thing was we started to find a confluence between our work on nature conservation and the ways that that could be pursued such that it also brought very substantial improvements in the livelihoods and well-being of rural and particularly the 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 stories that i'm thinking about you know very you know economically poor Mm -hmm. communities and so one of them that comes to mind is um in africa we did some work um in a river called the tana river in eastern africa and the um what had been happening it's another story about dams and we were trying to influence the kenyan government we actually had conversations with the minister of energy in kenya about changing these upstream dams and one of the one of the most powerful motivations for doing that was yes of course we wanted to improve the ecological health of the tana river and this very spectacular productive estuary you know as it entered the indian ocean but there were a lot of villages um, along the Tana river, which were very dependent upon having that river flood naturally um, during a long flooding season each year. And it would inundate the floodplain area. And as the flood would slowly recede back into the river, the villagers would go out and plant all kinds of crops, you know, 15, 20 different species of crops um, in that wet soil, in in that fertile soil in the floodplain. And that was their livelihood. I mean, that was where much of their food production came from, in addition to catching fish in the river. And when you, f- and so by changing the dam operations, we had the opportunity to also substantially improve the livelihoods of these people. And I think that was, you know, in my, you know, in my more mature years at the Nature Conservancy, I think that that intersection between people and nature um, was some, some of the most exciting work that we did.
1: Yeah. Uh-huh. I love that. That's that's terrific. You have all this international experience, uh, you know, working, like you said, in 30 some countries. Um, Mm -hmm. What do you think the United States can learn from water management in other countries? We obviously have plenty of challenges here. We don't have all the answers. Um, What what could we glean from the way that things are done in other countries, whether that's a developed country or a developing country?
0: Well, there's, there's an awful lot uh, that we can learn and that we have learned, um, Travis. Um, you know, I, I say that, you know, one of the things that was most enjoyable about my 30 years at the Nature Conservancy was the chance to see some really amazing work and to meet some brilliant people that were advancing really, really innovative solutions. But some that come to mind or maybe maybe one of the most important ones that come to mind is that here in the United States, uh, as we were developing the country, and particularly as we as we began to migrate into the western United States and started to use the water in the rivers for our growing cities and for our agricultural areas, we didn't think about the fact that we might want to leave some water in the river to protect the health of fish and you know and everything else you know that that lives in the river, and of course, today, to enable recreation on the rivers and that sort of thing. So we didn't leave any environmental flow is, is how refer to it today. And, and as a consequence, we have many, many places, the Colorado river, the Rio Grande, um, gosh, rivers all up and down, you know, the Western U S and now increasingly in the Southeastern U S and other parts of of the country where we're taking so much water out that we completely dry them up. Um, and that's causing all kinds of calamitous um, impacts. Well, there were a, couple of places, really beginning with South Africa. So mm-hmm. it's a fascinating story about Nelson Mandela's influence. So when, when, as apartheid fell and Mandela came into the presidency in South Africa in 1994, one of the really important things that he did was um, he appointed a human rights lawyer to become the water minister in South Africa. Cotter Asma was his name. And Cotter went to work on rewriting the National Water Act of South Africa, and he had an awful lot of help. There were a lot of of very, very talented policy specialists and scientists working on river conservation in South Africa. And one of the really important things that they did is in the National Act was they said, um, the first priority is to set aside enough water to meet basic human needs and to also set aside or make sure that enough water is flowing down these rivers to protect their ecological health. Because they very well understood that healthy rivers were supporting the quality of life, the li- literally supporting the livelihoods and well-being of, of very, very large populations. And so before they went about allocating any of the rest of the water, those two aspects Got reserved from the water allocation system, and only then, once that reserve was sort of carved out, um, protected, did they allow you know did they then start issuing water licenses you know for for the rest of the water, and it was just so it was such a progressive and integra- integrative innovative move back in 1998, and now other countries have followed that lead. And here in the United States, we're trying to play catch up. We're having to, we're having to, conservation organizations have to buy back water rights to get water back into rivers here. Mm-hmm. So it would be so much better. And, and it would be so good if states in the East, Eastern U.S. that haven't yet dried up the rivers would, would follow that kind of a lead.
1: Well, wow, that's a fascinating and amazing story about Nelson Mandela taking a, a human rights lawyer and, and putting that person in charge of water. Um, yeah. and, I, and I love that idea that the first two things you do are how much do the people need and how much does the river need? Okay. Right. Now now we can look at what we can portion out from there. Uh, yeah. Pretty, pretty brilliant approach. Um,
0: Absolutely.
1: Yeah. And so I guess that, you know, one of my questions was how do we balance water management for benefit of both people and nature and i guess that's that's the way is starting with that in mind and then going from there not doing it on the back end like you mentioned
0: that's exactly right it's it's finding that balance between you know how much water do you allow to remain within you know a river or stream or even a lake or a groundwater aquifer or flowing downstream into an estuary in the ocean um, it's really important, important. We've learned, you know, through our mistakes that that's a really, really important consideration. And so finding that balance of, of having enough water, um, doing, providing those natural services, those benefits, and just the inherent, you know, beauty and aesthetics and, and recreational opportunities that are afforded, you know, by these freshwater systems is so incredibly important. And Finding that right balance is exactly right. That's, that's what I would say, Travis. And, and you know, as I mentioned, um, in many, many places, unfortunately, we're already beyond that balance. We've sort of over allocated. We're overusing the water supply. Um, our analysis suggests that that's the case in about a third of all the world's rivers and streams, is that we have already over allocated, overusing what would you would consider to be unsustainable use. Um, and, and those, the people that depend upon those systems are getting into trouble. Um, it's, you know, they're threatened with water shortages and, and, uh, and all kinds of impacts. I mean, there's things like not even having enough water to be able to generate electricity at power plants because you need to run water through a power plant in order to keep it cool enough. So it literally doesn't melt down. <laughs> so it's, um, yeah, we've, we've learned the hard way, but, but there is, you know, there is a way to do this. There is. I yeah I I, uh, I I like to say that you know I'm I'm am I'm a never dying optimist because ironically we have made so many mistakes and we waste water to such an extent that I think there's so much room for improvement so that's what keeps me optimistic <laughs> ironically
1: yeah uh, so this idea that a third of the rivers are over allocated I mean you. you mm-hmm. You could say that's the case with the Colorado River, right, which we'll might dive into a little bit here. How do you start getting back from that? It's hard once you've given out X amount of water to ask a certain sector to, hey, you're going to have to make do with less. I mean, I guess that's what you have to do or you have to prioritize water efficiency and water conservation as a way to shrink, shrink different pieces of that pie.
0: Yes. Yeah, so – you know, one of the sort of one of my first principles, Travis, is when you're trying to resolve a water problem, to really understand uh, where the problem emanates from. In other words, with with water scarcity, water shortages, it's really important to understand, in some detail, how the water is being used. Where does the water go? That, you know, that we're taking out of this river, or out of this lake, or out of this groundwater aquifer. And across the United States, it varies. The proportions vary, you know, from state to state, west to east. But generally, agriculture is using irrigated agriculture, agriculture where you actually have to apply supplemental water in addition to the rainfall in order to to produce a crop. Irrigated agriculture across much of the United States accounts for two-thirds to three-fourths of all the water use. And... And then urban water use, um, you know, meaning, you know, urban drinking water supplies, industries, commercial operations, you know, manufacturing, that sort of thing, you know, largely accounts for, you know, let's say the other quarter to a third. And so um, the really good news, and we've documented this recently with some of our research, is that cities are doing a phenomenal job across the United States. Now, not uniformly, of course, Mm -hmm. but there are many, many large urban areas that have been able to grow, their populations are increasing, and their total water use is actually going down. And the reason that that's been possible, Travis, is that it has everything to do with what we're doing in our own homes. So Uh, We are using, you know, we switched away from water guzzling toilets and showers and washing machines and dishwashers. Um, We got to be a lot more careful about how we apply water outdoors, you know, whether it's our lawn or, you know, any landscaped area. And we have been able to bring down our average per person use so much that it has enabled populations to grow. In places like Los Angeles, San Diego, Phoenix, Las Vegas, Denver, and on and on, even in the eastern states, you know, New York City, they've been able to grow, and yet they're using less water. And our analysis suggests that we're going to be able to do a lot more of that. We're not done. We're not tapped out at all on water conservation, water efficiency. That's the good news side. We now need to see a similar revolution. Um, in the agricultural sector, that's not to say that there hasn't been a tremendous amount of improvement in a lot of places, but we need a wholesale transformation in the way that we're using water, um, in irrigated agriculture. Uh, that means changing the kind of crops that we grow in, in different places. It means getting a lot better with the way that we apply irrigation water. Um, and you know, it, it, it means... It means improving soil. So a lot of this organic and regenerative agriculture movement, you know, at the heart of that is trying to improve the quality of the soils that, that's you know, growing these crops. Well, it turns out that better quality soils retain a lot more moisture and require less supplemental irrigation to produce the crop. So there are, there are, we know how to do this. That's the great news, right? Um, We just need to do it, you know, in so many, many more places. Sure.
1: Well, I want to talk a little bit about what your work is now. Um, And I know that you've kind of been drawn out to the West a little bit. Um, Mm -hmm. Why do you find water in the West so compelling and and what are you up to out there?
0: Yeah, well, um, drawn out to the West. So uh, I like to say that my head lives in the East, my head and my body live in the East and my heart lives in the West. I grew (laughs) up in the West. Um, you know, my, my first, uh, you know, uh, 40 years were out in the Western United States. Um, through all that work with the Nature Conservancy that we were talking about earlier, Travis, and, you know, of course, working in, you know, 30-some different countries, 150s, 170 projects, we worked on everything. You know, we worked on all kinds of water challenges over that time. And the one that really ended up concerning me the most is what we refer to as water scarcity. So water scarcity is a situation where um, we get accustomed to using more water than is sustainable in a particular place. So it is places like the Colorado River, um, the Rio Grande, um, gosh, you know, the, the Pecos. Uh, mm. I could go on and on rivers across the Western United States, the San Joaquin and the Sacramento rivers in, mm. in Northern California. We've become accustomed to using so much of the of the river's water that we are um, in a situation where we're at great risk of water shortages, of water scarcity. So that's the problem I'm most concerned with. By the way, this is not unique to the Western United States. It's not unique to the United States. Um, I mentioned earlier that about a third of all the rivers and streams around the world are experiencing this problem. Interestingly, it has caught the attention of um, the financial sector. So the world economic forum puts out a report, um, every year of global risks. And for the last five years, water and specifically water scarcity has risen to the top of those global, r- global risks to the global economy. Okay. Mm-hmm. So this is a big deal and, uh, it's starting to, it's starting to finally, you know, get the attention that it really, really needs. And, Again, as I also said earlier, Travis, I'm also attracted to working on that because I think that the solutions exist and the challenge is communicating them, educating, motivating, inspiring people to do the right thing, You know, to, to do better um, with the way that they use water. So I've pretty much decided my new organization, by the way, I left the Nature Conservancy three years ago and formed this new organization called Sustainable Waters. And... That's my exclusive focus now is working on water scarcity. And um, and it's, um, it, as I said, it's a big challenge and, and it's one that we need, you know, we need a lot more attention and we need a lot more people working on the problem, frankly.
1: Mm. Well, as I kind of follow what's going on out West, uh, there does seem to be a tremendous influx of attention and people and organizations. Uh, It seems like, you know, the flag has really been raised of like, hold on, we have a a real crisis developing here. So that Mm -hmm. at least is, uh, I guess, reason for optimism is there's a, a ton of resources, a ton of expertise that's kind of pouring into these issues out there. Do you see that?
0: I do, I do. But you know, one of the one of the frustrating things, Travis, Ooh. for me is that um, for some reason, I guess it's just in our human genetics, we have a real big problem with dealing with slow moving, chronic problems. I think the pandemic is so illustrative of that. Climate change, so illustrative of that. Um, and in the water arena, unfortunately the vast majority of the historical instances has been that we don't take the necessarily serious steps. We don't respond adequately until we're having a really serious, tangible crisis. It's not until literally the taps run dry, you know, in South Africa, Mm. or in Chennai, India, or in Sao Paulo, Brazil, or, you know, it could be coming to, uh, you know, a neighborhood near you. So um, the, the impacts have to get very direct, very tangible, and very substantial before it provokes us into the necessary action. And having watched these things develop around the world and seen how communities respond or don't respond to them, that's so frustrating to me. Um the Colorado River we almost dried up the Colorado River in the mid 1950s okay we have used more water in many years in the last 40 years we have in many years we actually used more water than came down the Colorado River the only reason we were able to do that is because we have these big humongous storage reservoirs lake powell lake mead the two biggest reservoirs in america and so we've been able to get through those years where we're using more water than the river is supplying in a year because we tapped into those savings accounts we tap into those big storage reservoirs and take water out of the storage reservoirs well lake mead and lake powell are now two-thirds empty you know and they're going down again this is a bad year Hmm. they're projecting that the runoff that's going to come down the Colorado River is going to be something on the order of 45% of average. So we can expect the two reservoirs, Lake Mead and Lake Powell, are going to drop substantially again this year. And I just don't believe, Travis, that we're responding to this at at the scale, at the intensity that we need to to avoid a really, really serious crisis. So... I'm kind of obsessed with it. I, I, I check the numbers almost every single day. But it's because I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm honestly, earnestly fearful. Um, and it's both for people and nature because typically when you get into these crises, people do get hurt, but the environment really takes it hard. You know, it really takes it hard. We've seen, I've witnessed massive fish kills. Like in the Murray Darling River system down in Australia, and it's really painful to see. It's a painful thing to watch. Sure, sure.
1: <clears throat> I wanted to also ask you about uh, teaching at University of Virginia, mm. uh, an awesome university. Um, teaching you. teaching water sustainability. Tell me, tell me what you're teaching there.
0: Yes. Um, well, it's. Uh, you know, my, my wife says, you know, she said um, some time ago after I came home from one of my classes when we could do in-person classes, of course, she said, you know, she looked at me and she said, you know, you're a different person after you come back from class. It's like you have this this spark, this energy, you know, and and it's and that energy comes from the students, you know, um, for whatever people think about, you know, that generation, um I, I think it's really inspiring. I think they're so much more knowledgeable about environmental issues and social issues than we were when we were their age. Um, there's, a, there's a hunger to learn. They, they want to make a change in the world. Their, their sense of responsibility to the planet and to their communities is very strong. And so what I've tried to do is just to make them water literate. Um, I think that water is going to be one of the biggest, I know it's going to be one of the biggest issues in their lifetimes, and uh, particularly, you know, under the influence of climate change. And so I want to make sure that they understand both the challenge that they're facing, but they also understand that there are things that we can do about it. Mm -hmm. So um, if there's anything that's important to me to impart, Travis, to them is a sense of hope. Um, it's the optimism that I hold and, and as you can tell it's it's you know I believe it um and uh but in in the class, we touch on you know all aspects of water um obviously pretty lightly, you know, but we talk about you know the economics of water, the laws that that govern water um how water is used to to produce our food to produce our energy, how we use water in our cities et cetera, et cetera um so it's an overall introduction to water.
1: Mm. We we should have every member of the public take that class, right? Water Water One Hundred One. Do you know where water comes from? Do you know how we clean it? Do you know how we manage it? Do you know uh, how it drives our economy and our health? And that uh, that's fantastic. Yeah. Well. Spot- well, Brian, I really uh, I appreciate spending this time with you and hearing some tremendous perspective, a couple of really great stories there. Um, I look forward to staying in touch and, uh, and watching watching things get more sustainable out there.
0: Well, and Travis, hey, thanks to you. I mean, you're providing a real service. And, and just to the last point that we made, you know, this is part of educating, you know, more people about some of these issues. So thank you. All right. Thanks, Brian. All right. Take care, Travis. Waterloo thanks everyone for listening to today's
1: episode a special thanks to Waterloop supporters Springpoint partners and the Walton family Foundation the Waterloop podcast is sponsored by high Sierra showerheads the smart stylish way to save energy water and money while enjoying a powerful shower save 20% with promo code waterloop at high Sierra if you like Waterloop please subscribe to the YouTube channel or your favorite podcast platform. Follow us on social media and visit waterloop.org to sign up for updates. Waterloop, Waterloop, Waterloop.